So can you turn to Revelation chapter 1, please? Um, if you haven't got a Bible, just run and get one. Um, and and you know, you're maybe using your phone to stream this. So, so grab the paper Bible and get it open in front of you. Um, I spent a lot of time yesterday just turning this over in my mind, trying to figure out what exactly do we say in these days? What does the church need? What does the world need? And as, as the day went on, Revelation 1 became more and more prevalent in my imagination. And I want to just take a, a few minutes today and soak in this chapter and look at what it, what it tells us. You know, one of the most difficult things that we have to deal with as Christians is the concept of suffering. And it is a reason why some people don't come to faith. Um, and as we begin today, you may well have questions in your mind. You may well not be someone who goes to church or ever listens to sermons online. You may have a pile of questions that are buzzing around your head from things that you have seen on TV, on the internet in recent days. And I'm not here to answer those questions because no one can answer all of those questions. Uh, and what we need is not answers. What, what we need is a revelation of Jesus. That is what the world needs, what the church needs at this time. Not answers, not ideas, but an actual clear revelation of who Jesus is. And the book of Revelation is, is you know, can be misunderstood and, and people can get very much fascinated with a lot of things in it. The book of Revelation was written to people who were suffering. There are seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 that Jesus himself dictates to seven churches. John writes it all down and John sends it to the seven churches. But those churches are suffering. Those churches are being persecuted by the Roman Empire, persecuted by the emperors themselves. Horrendous stories of what Christians endured in those days, how they were tortured, how they were brutally put to death. They were a suffering people, a persecuted people. And the book of Revelation, first and foremost, is a message for a people who are suffering, who are fearful, who have a lot to be afraid of. And Jesus contacts John and shows him some things that John then can write down and send to the churches to encourage them. And a little tip for reading the book of Revelation, you, you don't have time to do it right now, but basically you need to know the whole Old Testament uh, quite well uh, to see in Revelation there are about 404 verses, but within those 404 verses it's estimated that there's over 500 references to the Old Testament. This book is just is soaked in the Old Testament, and whenever you, you get more and more familiar with the Old Testament, the book of Revelation really does come to life in a new way. Verse 1 says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. The revelation of Jesus Christ means two things. It is Jesus who is giving the revelation, and it is Jesus who is being revealed. The purpose of the book is to show people Jesus. And that's what will happen in chapter 1. Before anything else, we will get a picture of who Jesus actually is. I want to read verses 9 to 16 and then just take a walk through them. Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, 
your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Father, I ask that you would bless your word to us, that your Holy Spirit would move in our homes and in our hearts, and that you would take these words about Jesus and cause them to be great encouragement to your people. Amen. Um, So John's in exile. John has been bad because he's been preaching about Jesus in the Roman Empire. They don't like that and they don't want that. The emperor does not want any threat to himself or to his rule. He doesn't want anyone else declaring that they are the king. And therefore, John is punished by exile, which means he is banished to an island called Patmos and basically left there to die so that he can't have contact with people. He can't um, preach. He, He can't encourage his churches that he leads. He has been sent away on his own. And once a month, there would have been a day that people in that region would have celebrated called Emperor Day. Every, every month, they would have worshipped the emperor and, and made much of him for a day. John says in, in these verses that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that Sunday, the day the Christians remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And John is on this island on his own, and I think he is praying for the churches that he leads, because... Whenever the the voice speaks to him, he is told to write down what he's about to see and what he's about to hear and send it to those churches. So I can picture this man who is separated from those who he loves. And he's, he's wandering about on this island and praying for the church praying for people by name in those churches that we just mentioned in, in verse 11. And Paul would have been in a similar position. Paul spent time in prison on on several occasions. And while he was there, he probably, his heart probably broke for the church. And John's heart broke for the church. He wanted to be with the people that he loves. Um, It's quite bizarre in here this morning because I want to see your faces and I can't see your faces. I'm surrounded by a wall of chairs to kill the echo in the room. And John, I can... I can imagine just the agony that he felt because he led a group of people and he loved them, but he was not able to be with them. And the same for Paul. And I can imagine both Paul and John sitting down with a pen and paper or whatever it was they had and starting to write. 
and thinking to themselves, what, what use is this? You know, what, what good is, is a letter? Paul in prison writing the letter to the Philippians, for example, he's, he's probably thinking, what, what good is this? This is going to be read by a handful of people and it's probably going to go and lie in, in some corner somewhere and gather dust. But little did he know that 2,000 years we're still reading it and we're still taking encouragement from it. Little did John know on the island of Patmos as he was walking about on his own, missing his church, that, that the things he wrote down would bring encouragement to the church thousands of years later. And maybe, maybe this time that we are going through, we, we can find ourselves as a church saying, well, well, what use is a live streamed service from an empty room? What good is that? I want to be with people. But maybe, just maybe, God is actually working in the darkness. Maybe there are a lot of people and a lot more people than usual this morning across the world who are tuning into churches, tuning into some lonely preacher with his plant on his own, um, declaring the word of God. Maybe all over the world there's an awakening because of the uncertainty that this thing has brought. And there is a sense within people that they want truth. They want to know about the deeper, more important issues of life that they have ignored for all their lives so far. Maybe the church of Jesus Christ is about to go viral. Maybe we're going to see revival and renewal that we have been praying for for years and years and years. It is in moments of crisis historically that revivals and renewals take place. And church, we need to take encouragement in that and we need to believe that God is moving in the darkness and that he will bring forth life from, from this. What did Jesus do in response to John's prayer? He's in the Spirit in verse 10. It's the Lord's day. I believe he's praying for the churches and for the people that he misses. What does Jesus do in response? What he does is he gives John a revelation of himself. He doesn't give John a revelation of the future. He doesn't, he doesn't give John newspaper headlines, you know, 2,000 years in advance. He gives John a revelation of himself. He shows John who he is. How will he reveal himself? We, we know lots of pictures of Jesus in the Gospels. Will he reveal himself as a shepherd, tending his flock, as a kind Christ, blessing the little children? Uh, a tragic Christ nailed to a cross, a compassionate Christ touching the leper? Will it be a thoughtful Christ in, in discussion with a religious scholar? What way is Jesus going to reveal himself to John? And you've got to hold in your mind as we go through this that, that what we're talking about here is a suffering church who are surrounded by things that are designed to make them exceptionally fearful. And what is Jesus going to show to this church at this time to encourage them? As, as we go through verses 12 to 16, I want you to let your imagination just go wild because that's what God gave it to you for. God does not want you to switch off your imagination as you're reading the Bible. He wants you to read. And the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is pictures and images and symbols. And they are meant to cause your mind and your imagination to just go totally bonkers. You're meant to see this. You're meant to picture it. And, and you're meant to understand what the symbols represent. It is a, it's a feast for the imagination. In verse 13, we're told that, that Jesus appears like a son of man, like a son of man. Now that seems like a random term. What does that actually mean? You know, John, John knows Jesus. John, 60 years before this, 
um, sat with Jesus at the Lord's Supper, traveled with Jesus, was at the cross with Jesus, saw the risen Jesus. This, this is now quite a long time in the future at the end of John's life. And Jesus is different now. He looks different than he did the last time John saw him. And he refers to him as being one like a son of man. Now, I'm not going to go back to the Old Testament too many times this morning because it'll take too long. But if you do have a Bible, can you go back to Daniel chapter 7? Because this phrase, son of man, is actually extremely important in describing who Jesus actually is. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream and visions pass through his mind. And what Daniel sees in his dream and in his visions, he sees the sea. And the sea in Hebrew understanding was a place of chaos. It was a place of tremendous fear. That's why the disciples in the boat were so terrified. Um, The sea was something they could not control. They could not understand. They needed it to work. But they were fearful of, of the chaos that could rise up from the sea during a storm. And in Daniel's vision, he sees four beasts coming out of the sea. And every beast is more terrifying than the one that came before it. And the four beasts represent four different empires of history that would come from Daniel's time right up to the time of Jesus. These four ugly, vicious, terrifying beasts. And he describes them all in some detail And you can picture the scene where Daniel sees these things coming out out of the water one after another. And you think, goodness me, isn't this awful? Isn't the world a terrifying place with all of these things that are causing people to be fearful and to be oppressed? But then Daniel sees someone else. And in verse 9, he says, as I looked. So as he's watching this scene and as he's watching the, the beasts coming out of the water, as I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and his wheels were all ablaze. This is God. And later in the vision, Daniel says, In my vision at night, I looked, this is verse 13, And there before me was one like a son of man. That's the phrase that John picks up on in Revelation. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Daniel uses that phrase, son of man, or when John picks up that phrase, son of man, He is talking about this figure who has all authority. And he is reminding the church who are suffering and who are fearful that there is one who has overcome and there is one who has all authority that has been given to him. All of these other beasts will rise and fall, but the Ancient of Days is on his throne and the Son of Man has been given authority. And the ultimate truth of all of that is that King Jesus is in control. He goes on to describe the clothing that this son of man is wearing. In verse 13, he's wearing the garments of a priest. Now, a priest, and every Christian, every follower of Jesus is called to be a priest. 
A priest is someone who stands between people and God and brings people to God and brings God to people. And that's one of the reasons as a church that we need to be praying so much in these days because we need to bring people to God, people who are fearful, people who are suffering, people who have questions, people who have burnt out trying to hold our health service together. We need to bring them before God. Jesus is represented as a priest because he brings us to God and he brings God to us. He shows us what God is like. If you, if you have a vague, woolly notion of what God is actually like this morning, you need to read the Gospels because Jesus shows us what God is like. He's dressed as a priest, and it says that he has this golden sash or golden belt around his chest. And what the priests in the temple would have done each day was when, when they were going to the temple to make sacrifices, they would have put their belt around their waists. And if anybody saw them going up to the temple, belt around the waist, they knew that they were going to do the daily work of sacrifice. But whenever they loosened the belt and moved it up and put the belt around the chest, that was a symbol that they had gone and done their work of sacrifice and the work was finished. And whenever John describes Jesus as having this golden belt around his chest, what he's saying is that Jesus has finished his work of sacrifice. He has made a sacrifice for the sins of all people, and it is done and never has to be done again. Verse 14 says that his head and hair were white like wool. The Old Testament frequently uses this image of something being white like wool, to describe people who have had their sins washed away. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come and let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be wool. That's the promise that is held out to everyone who comes to Jesus. Their sins washed away and made white as wool. David prays in Psalm 51 after he has committed terrible sin, and he prays and says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So the hair of this figure is described as being white, speaking of purity. And then also in verse 14, his eyes are like blazing fire, also speaking of purity. He, he is pure and he is purifying. These are eyes that don't look at us, that don't look through us, These are eyes that look right within us. Jesus can see right into the very heart of who we are. And we need to be real in front of him about who we are. We can present a false impression to others. We can wear masks. But he has purifying eyes that can see right into the core of our very being and brings purity to that which it looks at. The third thing we read about his actual physical being. So we've got his his head and his hair being white and we've got his his eyes burning, we then read that he has feet of bronze in verse, four, or verse 15. Feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Again, this re- refers back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel interprets a dream that was given to a man called Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pagan king. And Nebuchadnezzar in the dream sees this tremendous statue in front of him. His head is made of gold. And the, the, the chest is silver and the thighs are bronze and the legs are iron. And it's a very, very impressive sight. And Nebuchadnezzar is told that he himself and his kingdom is represented by this golden head. And then the other kingdoms are represented by the other parts of the body. 
But the important thing is the feet of that statue, which tells us a lot about the things in this world that look imposing, that look threatening, that look powerful. The feet of the statue were made of clay and iron mixed together. Now, you don't need to be a chemistry teacher to know that clay and iron are not going to bond together. They're not going to mix. And they will break very, very easily. You mix clay and iron and you hit it, it will very, very quickly fall apart. And in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the book of Daniel, he was basically finding out the fact that all of the kingdoms of the world, all of the great, towering, impressive structures that man can build are all built on a very shaky foundation. The, the book of Daniel in chapter 2 goes on to talk about a kingdom that will come that will blow it all away. It is the kingdom of God. But whenever John sees this vision of Jesus in Revelation in the chapter that we're in, John sees somebody whose feet are not iron mixed with clay. He sees somebody whose kingdom is not tottering, whose kingdom is not shaking. It's not brittle. It's not fickle and temperamental. He sees one who has feet of bronze. Now, bronze is a mixture of copper and iron. And copper is, is flexible. It's malleable. It bends, but it won't corrode. Copper does not rust the way iron rusts. Iron is very, very strong, but it rusts. So iron and copper on their own have their flaws. But when you mix iron and copper together to get bronze, you have got the strength of the iron and you have got the durability of the copper and you have got something that is incredibly strong. And John sees a vision of Jesus. Hold in your mind that this is all being given to a fearful, suffering, persecuted church. John sees a vision of Jesus with feet of bronze, because his kingdom will not fall. Nothing can hit him and knock him over. And suffering people and fearful people need something that they can cling to that will not shake. The fourth thing about his actual physical appearance is his voice in verse 15. I'm actually going to come back to that at the end and jump on to the fifth one. It says in verse 16 that in his hand he holds seven stars. Now in the ancient world that John was writing into, in particular the culture around Rome, astrology was a big deal. And there were seven known planets, which is what these seven stars are probably referring to. And people thought that the movement of those seven planets was what dictated what went on in the world, what dictated how your day went, whether you know, one planet went one way or one went the other way. They, they believed that this influenced life, and we see that still today with people who read horoscopes and follow astrology. There was a belief that the movement of the seven planets, the seven stars, dictated life. John sees a Jesus who holds those seven planets in his hands. It is not the planets that dictate life. It is not the planets that hold the universe together. It is the Word of God that sustains the universe. It is Jesus who is in control. Out of his mouth in, in verse 16, there is a double-edged sword. Now, that does not mean if you literally saw Jesus, there'd be a sword sticking out of his mouth. That's not how we interpret this book. What it means is that his words have power. It means that his words will divide between what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what brings death and what brings life. That's the image of a sword coming out of his mouth. 
And the seventh and last thing just about his physical appearance is his face. It says in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. John loved light. And he, earlier in his gospel, he wrote about how the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. There's a lot of darkness in the world today. This light needs to shine in the darkness. Light drives darkness away and dispels it. You know, the ultimate blessing that people could come up with in the Old Testament was that the face of God would be turned towards his people. You've probably heard a, a blessing, a prayer from Numbers chapter 6. You've maybe heard it sang by choirs. Um, I remember our school choir a couple of times singing it at speech day. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And what John sees is Jesus' face. And his face is not an angry face. His face is not a face of disappointment, uh, not a face of scowling or discouragement. John sees the face of Jesus shining and shining towards the people of God. This is a face that you can look into without fear. This is a face of blessing and encouragement and strength. And John, as he represents, as he stands representing these seven persecuted churches and he looks to God for encouragement Jesus reveals himself and his face is shining he's with his people and we are a people who need to see each other's faces at this time I know I've emphasized this on the whatsapp group I know I've already mentioned it this morning I'm in an empty room and I've got no faces to look at and it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I believe neuroscientists will tell you that, that whenever you look at somebody's face, whenever you look into their eyes and you have conversation with them, your brain releases dopamine because it's good to connect with people. It's good to have a physical face-to-face connection. And that's why I really want you to use FaceTime and Zoom and Google Hangouts and whatever it may be, you need to see each other's faces, church. You need to look into each other's eyes, not just send messages and quotes to one another. Jesus' face is turned towards his church, and it's a face of blessing and light. And actually what you've got here in these these seven things that are described, you've got a structure that is going to put a particular focus onto one of them. Back in, in verse 14, number one, speaks about his head and talks about forgiveness, the white hair speaking of purity and forgiveness. The seventh one was his face speaking of blessing. So number one, we've got his head and number seven, we've got his face. The second thing we saw was his eyes in verse 14. And the sixth thing we saw was his mouth. The, the, the organs that we use to, to, to relate to people and to communicate with people. So we've got his head and his face. And then when we come in closer, we've got his eyes and his mouth. The third and the fifth thing that we see are his feet, like bronze in verse 15, and his hands holding the stars in verse 16. Our hands and our feet are the ways that we get things done. 
So we have the head and we have the face. We have the eyes and we have the mouth. We have the feet and we have the hands. And right in the middle, the fourth one out of the seven. And this, is, this structure is designed to focus our attention on this point. At the very, very center of the description in verse 15, it says, His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. At the heart of everything is the voice of God. We need to be a people who are focused on his voice, who are listening to him, listening to him in his word and listening to him in prayer. And more than any other gospel writer, John in his gospel talks about Jesus speaking. Huge, huge chunks of John's gospel are just the words of Jesus recorded for us. And he says here in Revelation that that his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. John did not have the illustrations that we have to draw from. He couldn't say that his voice was like the sound of a jet plane going overhead. He, he He couldn't use those things because they didn't exist. So he used one of the noisiest things he could possibly think of, and it was the sound of rushing waters. We were in the Mourns a couple of days ago. Pretty easy to socially distance yourself up there. And walking past even smallish streams, the sound of the water is absolutely mesmerizing. You can just stand and listen to it. And whenever you hear the sound of rushing water, torrents of water, it drowns out every other sound. There's a a movie that came out, I think, last year called A Quiet Place, which is um, actually a wonderful film. Don't watch it with your children. It's squeaky clean. But it's a bit tense, um, but it's a very, very profound film. On the one hand, it's sort of a monster movie, but on the other hand, it's actually a really powerful story about family and what family will actually do to survive. And in, in the movie, the family have to stay silent the whole time. They cannot make noise, and they totally readjust their lives in order to stay silent. And maybe even that is like a, a timely reminder that as families and as individuals, we need to readjust our lives right now with what we're dealing with. But in the film, there's one scene where the father has a conversation with his son and it's the only conversation in the entire film. And the reason he can have the conversation with him is because they're standing behind a waterfall and the rushing noise of the water over the waterfall drowns out every other sound and they can safely have a conversation without being heard. The sound of rushing waters drowns out every other voice. One of the things that is happening today in the world is that the voice of fear has got louder than it ever has before. And that's not an exaggeration. The media, social media, the newspapers, everything is giving a voice to fear. I'm thankful for the media. I'm thankful for newspapers. We need to know what's going on, but we also need to be measured in terms of how much we engage with that. Because we have an enemy who thrives on fear, who wants people to be terrified, who wants them to be uncertain about what's going on. And he will latch on and take advantage of the many different outlets that that are now acting as, as fear producers, fear factories almost. And that voice of fear is getting louder and louder and louder. Every time you put on the radio, when I get into the car, the radio comes on automatically. I can't remember the last time what was being discussed was something other than this virus. Every time you put on the TV, every time you go to social media, it's just there all the time. And the voice of fear has been given just 
10 million megaphones over the last few weeks to get louder and louder and louder into our lives. We must, church, have a voice that drowns it out. We must. The voice that John hears on the beach on the island of Patmos one Sunday in the first century as he's praying for the church, the voice that he hears has the power to drown out every other voice like the sound of rushing waters. The only way that we will overcome fear, that we will not become absorbed by it or get washed away in the flood of fear that is covering the planet at the minute, the only way we will overcome that is by listening to a voice that is louder. And we must be listening to King Jesus. We must be in his word. We need to be encouraging one another with the word of God reading it, listening to it, sitting with our families, talking about it. We must have a voice. This is so important. We must have a voice that shouts louder than fear. So those are seven things that John uses to describe the physical appearance of this Jesus who reveals himself on the island of Patmos. We haven't read the remaining couple of verses that I want to cover this morning yet. Let me read them now. Verse 17, when I saw him, this is John's response to the the person that he sees on the beach. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I can picture this. I told you to use your imagination and I hope you can picture it too. I can picture John as he sees this figure I defy anyone who thinks they could stay on their feet when they see a figure like like what John has just described. And as John sees him, he collapses to his knees, to the ground on his face, because he's in the presence of God himself. And he drops to the ground in fear. Fear of what's going on around him, and now this terrifying, powerful figure that has appeared in front of him, he drops to the ground. And instead of some terrible thing happening, John feels a hand on his shoulder. And I can imagine John on the on the ground looking round and looking at his shoulder, and he sees the hand on his shoulder, and it is a hand that has a scar in it from a nail, because this is a risen Christ who has conquered death and conquered the grave, but still as he appeared to the disciples at the end of the Gospels, he still bore the marks of the cross and still does. The hand that is placed on John's shoulder is a nail-pierced hand, a hand that, 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 that that was pierced for our sins, a hand that holds the seven stars, and a hand that is placed on the shoulders now of every man, woman, and child who bows before him. And he says, do not be afraid. And part of your response to that thinking, well, what good is that? (laughs) You know, 
What good is that, Jesus? You know, we are, are literally, our churches in the first century, our people are being fed to lions in order to entertain the Romans. Our people are being executed in ways that are too gruesome to describe in case little ears are listening. What good is it to just say, don't be afraid? You've got to do more than that. Do you not understand what's happening, Jesus? Do you not, do you not get it? Do you not understand right now, Jesus, that there is, there has been sweeping the globe uh, an uncontrollable virus? Do you not understand? How can you just say, don't be afraid? You've got to give me something, Jesus. You, you, you can't just say, it'll, it'll all be okay. Can't do that. That's not, that's not enough. It's not enough. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Some of us are fearful now. Okay, some of us who, have, who, are, who are working on the front line and who are seeing this eye to eye, toe to toe, the effect that this thing is having in our hospitals, and we are fearful. And Jesus says, do not be afraid, but there's got to be more. There ha- it cannot just be, do not be afraid, thank you very much, good night. There has to be something more to it. And this is a command. You need to understand, when Jesus says, do not be afraid, He doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. He says, don't be afraid. That is a command to the church. Don't be afraid. How can we obey this? How can we obey this? Satan, as I mentioned earlier, loves the 24-7 news cycle. He just loves it. He loves the fact that he is screaming fear now through multiple billions of speakers and phones and laptops and radios and TVs. He is screaming fear to humanity. And Jesus comes and says, do not be afraid. What is one voice against so many? What qualifies Jesus to talk like this? Because it's no good to me if you just say, do not be afraid. You've got to be qualified to be able to say that. Jesus says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He's previously said, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and and last letters of the Greek alphabet. What he's saying is, when he says, I'm the first and the last, he's saying, I am everything in between as well. I know you're going out and I know you're coming in in the Old Testament, God says. That doesn't mean he knows when you leave the house and then takes his eyes off you and at the end of the day he sees you coming back in again. What it means is I see you're going out, I see you're coming in, I see everything in between. I see you're sitting down and I see you're rising up and I see everything in between. I am the first, I am the last and I am everything in between. John Mark McMillan puts it well in his song that says, You are my future and my past. And he's also our present. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And he goes on to say in verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, you can very easily miss it. If you're looking at your Bible, there's a little word in there. It is the word behold which just doesn't seem to mean very much. It's a word that pops up in the Bible quite a bit, and you can very easily think, well, it's 
it's just one of those words to sort of grab our attention or something. But the word behold is a command. And I want you to get this. I'm nearly done. The word behold is a command. Jesus has given us the command, do not be afraid. And then he gives us another command which tells us how to obey the first one. Behold means look at me. That's what the word means. If you like to write on your Bible or take notes on your Bible app, get the pen out, get the highlighter out and highlight the word behold because it means look at me. And I do believe that that's the word of God today to us as a church and to anyone else who who would listen in. Jesus' command is look at me. He is qualified to tell us to not be afraid. I can't tell you don't be afraid, but I can bring you a message from King Jesus that says, do not be afraid because I have conquered death. Do not be afraid. I was dead. Look at me. I am alive. He says to John, look at me. Look at me. This is how you overcome fear. He says to John, this is the message that you're going to bring to the church. The message is a message saying, look at Jesus. That is the only way to overcome fear. In this crisis or any crisis that we find ourselves in, whatever may happen to us, Jesus is victorious. We must look at him. If we are afraid right now, and I gently encourage you to to just reflect, are you feeling fearful? And if you're feeling fearful, can can I ask you, are you looking in the right direction? Are you listening to the devil's fear factory? Or are you listening to the sound of the voice of Jesus as rushing waters that drowns everything else out? Are you looking in the right direction? Because Jesus in this book, and I'll repeat this ad nauseum to make sure you get it. In this book, seven churches are being represented by John. He's praying for them. He's concerned about them. He cannot be with them. And it breaks his heart that he cannot be with them. And he wants something to encourage them with. Ideally, he'd love to go. He'd love to preach a sermon. Ideally, he'd love to go. He'd love to give them a hug. He'd love to put his hands on their shoulders and pray for them, but he can't. He's not allowed to. He's isolated. But what he can give them is a description of this awesome resurrected Jesus and the message, look at me. Look at me. Fix your gaze on me. This is the Jesus who walked into the gaping jaws of death. Let death take him captive and then burst out again on the third day, alive, resurrected. This is the one who silenced death. One of our favorite songs here is has, has a, a, a part in it that says, Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. Now, church, when we sing that again, (laughs) there's a very real threat that the roof may leave the building. All right, we're going to sing that again. And boy, we're going to sing it loud. Get it written down in the next worship set list for here. Death could not hold him And he has silenced the boast of sin and grave. Right now, sin and grave are shouting loudly. 
through all of those megaphones and all of those speakers and all of those things that are being given to the enemy to allow him to raise his voice. Sin and the grave and the consequences of it are shouting loudly, but we shout louder about one who death could not hold. And the only reason that we can tell a fearful world to not be afraid is because there is one who has conquered death, who offers right now life that death cannot take away. I have eternal life already, the life of God within me. Whatever happens to me physically, that life of God within me can never be for one moment taken away. I am alive forevermore because he is alive forevermore. He has conquered death and therefore we need not fear death. And he says also that he holds the keys in verse 18. I've described this image before of the church, but as I read this, I, I picture uh, a scene from maybe an old Western movie where, where a guy has been put in the, in the sheriff's prison house and where the sheriff is lying, sleeping with his feet up on the desk, the guy breaks out. And as, he's, as he walks out the door, he, he stops and he looks back and he sees bunches of keys on the wall of the, of the, of the sheriff's office. And with a smile on his face, he lifts the keys and he walks out. He's not only himself overcome and been set free, but he now holds the keys and can set others free. And I can see Jesus. I can picture him as I let Revelation run riot in my imagination. I can picture Jesus walking out of the tomb and symbolically looking over his shoulder and seeing a bunch of keys hanging on the wall and saying, I'll take those now. Thank you very much. I hold the keys. Death causes no fear. Death has nothing to boast about. Death has no sting. Jesus has overcome and he holds the keys. And John falls to his knees on this island as a prisoner. But when he rises up again, he rises up as a pastor. He rises up now with a revelation of Jesus that he's going to take and bring to the church and bring to suffering, fearful people to encourage them. Right now, the world needs an epidemic of pastors, all right? Not just people like me and others who are sitting in empty rooms this morning communicating the word of God. Every single one of you that follows Jesus, every one of you can be a shepherd to the community that you have influence over. Every one of you. You don't have to be ordained. You don't have to wear a certain type of clothing. You don't have to to go through a certain type of of, uh, procedure. Right now, you can be a pastor to a fearful family member. Right now, you can be a pastor to a neighbor, to a friend, you can be a shepherd to that person. You might, not, you might not turn around and lead a church tomorrow morning, but you can be a shepherd to someone who is in fear. You can bring them this picture of Jesus and encourage them with it. And we need to have pastors and shepherds rising up to encourage the church. Some of you are going to become leaders in these days. As we're forced into, into isolation, as we're forced to look at new ways of being together, some of you are going to rise up as leaders. And as the church in Acts chapter 8 was scattered, the church now that is isolated and separated is going to grow. Jesus is building his church, and we need to be aware of what he is doing. Eugene Peterson, in his wonderful book on Revelation, says in, in his comments on chapter 1, 
Anybody can dream up a happy ending to a story, but it is a poor joke for the oppressed and persecuted, for exiles and strangers. A vision, though, sees what is actually there. Anyone can say it'll all be all right, but that means nothing to those who are suffering. Let me read it again. Anybody can dream up a happy ending to a story, but it is a poor joke for the oppressed and persecuted, for exiles and strangers. A vision, though, sees what is actually there. John sees a vision of what is actually real. And he can go to people then and not say to them, it's all going to be fine. He can go and say, Jesus is alive and he is in control, and you need not be fearful. You need to look at him. In the following chapters, Jesus dictates seven letters to the churches that John has influence over. And in every single one of those letters, the letter starts with some aspect of this description of Jesus from chapter 1 and ends with a promise to those who overcome or who conquer. Every church is given some aspect of Jesus to look at. Look at this. You will conquer. You will overcome. There will be, after that, visions of what currently is going on in heaven around the throne of God. There will be a glimpse behind the scenes into what is happening on earth. This is all coming in the book of Revelation. But first, first, church, you've got to see Jesus. You've got to get your gaze fixed on him completely. This glorious picture. I think when this Bible of mine falls apart, it's going to be Revelation 1. It'll be the page that'll drop out first. I love this Jesus. He is enabling us to overcome. And the way we overcome is by having a clear vision of who he is. First priority for those who are suffering is that you see King Jesus in all his risen, death-conquering glory. That's first priority. A magnificent Christ with everything under his power and control. And I would ask you, if you don't follow him, what have you found that is better? What is there right now in your circle of influence and in the moment that we're living in historically, what have you found that is better than Jesus? What have you found that has got feet of bronze? What have you found that has got a face that is shame? What have you found that has a word and a voice like rushing mighty waters that drowns out the voice of fear? If you're not following him wholeheartedly, tell me what you found that's better. Tell me what you found that, that will hold up in this storm. You may have started listening to this with a million questions, and you still have them, and I don't have any answers, and I make no apology for the fact that I have no answers. I was listening to a song this morning that had just a, a moment in it that said, in the light of his face, all our questions fade away. Take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. I don't have answers. We don't need answers. We need Jesus. Let me pray for you and then we're done. Father, I want to thank you that you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
I want to thank you that fear has no place in this body, this body of mine. I thank you for the victory that Jesus won over death and hell, that death could not hold him, that the grave can no longer boast, that its victory has been absolutely quashed and silenced in the victory of Jesus. I want to thank you, Lord, that despite all the many billions of devices that are giving volume and amplification to the voice of fear, that there is a voice that drowns out every other voice. Lord, cause your church to listen to that voice. Cause your church to fill their hearts and their souls and their spirits and their homes and one another with that voice that drowns out fear. May we go away from this time together with ringing in our ears the command of Jesus, do not be afraid. Look at me. Look at me. May our questions, in the light of his face, may all our questions fade away. Take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. God bless you, church. Thanks for tuning in. And you can let me know whether, whether it um, came across in an appropriate way. We love you. We miss you so much. Uh, this really is a, a sacrifice to not be together. But we will honor our, our government. We will honor our leadership. And we will honor our brothers and sisters who are in the NHS battling this thing. We will honor them by living respectfully and carefully in these days. Please get in touch if you want to chat, um, if you want to discuss anything, or if you've never tuned in to Table before in any way, shape, or form, and you want to say hi on, on Facebook or on the website, would love to touch base with you. God bless you all. Have a good day. Ahem. <clears throat>